kids. We were talking about the, the moving up service. Nick leaned over and said, we should call it the moving on up service. And then we would know how old all of you are because like the rest of us old people in the room, you'd start singing the Jefferson's theme song, right? Anybody grew up in that era? Come on. Don't be, don't be, don't be bashful. Don't be bashful. Nick, you're way too, you had to see the reruns because that's before your time. Before your time. Well, we're excited for uh, just this night, just what God wants to do in your life through just we worship, right? We, we pray, we greet one another, uh, then we, we dig into God's Word, and, and, and that's an important part of our service because we believe that God's Word is alive. The Bible, in speaking of itself, says that it's alive and active, that it's, it's quick and powerful in the King James. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating to dividing soul and spirit and joint and marrow that we read in the book of Hebrews. There's, there's a life to God's Word, and we want that life to get into this life so that we can have the God life that He's destined and dreamed for us to discover and have with one another. So come on. I hope that there is a sense of expectation in your heart tonight. We uh, want to do a, uh, uh, our giveaway. Come on. We like to do a giveaway every week at the City Life Church. So we've got these new, come on, the new bumper stickers. So we know that some of you, who here is anti-bumpers? You don't put bumper stickers on your car, right? We deliver you in the name of Jesus right now. You're delivered in the name of Jesus. So you, know, you can put this anywhere. It's a, it's a st it's sticker. We just got these came out. So what we're going to do is our giveaway tonight. Since all of you braved the rain, come on, you know you did. All the sissies, they stayed at home. You know who you are. You're listening to the podcast right now, tomorrow, right? All of you get one of these tonight on your way out. Come on. I know. Yeah. And then next week, we're going to hold it up and tease the people who didn't come that they don't get one. Because we believe in a little bit of taunting at the City Life Church. So we like to joke there's no condemnation in Christ. Romans tells us that. But there is sometimes here from your pastor. So, so you'll get one of those on the way out. And uh, come on, we wanna, I wanna, I wanna, as I'm riding around this week, I want to see a car go by and one of those on the bumper. So, and let me share this, this story with you. I pull this out every, every few years. This is, um, you know, my first job coming out of college was at the Christian Children's Fund. They, they've since changed their name, but it's the International Child Sponsorship Agency, and I worked there for about five years. And so this was written about 20 years ago, but, but I, I've saved a copy of it because it, it's such an inspiring story. And if you've been with a church for a minute of time, you, maybe you've heard it, me read it before. It's called the Tawichi Story. It says, if you'd like to believe in miracles, read on. In the midst of the harsh poverty of Bolivia's slums, there was a little academy called Tawichi. It is a place noted for two things, helping kids excel in soccer and helping them succeed in life. The academy was once a rich boy's school, and the poorer kids outside its boundaries would gather at the fence and watch them practice soccer for hours on end. Then one day, the schoolboys, having lost a player, invited one of the fence kids, that's what they were called, invited one of the fence kids to play. Now, this young outsider so shocked them with his speed and daring, they started calling him Menina, the cat. Did I say that right, Menina? Where's, where's Amanda? Is that his cat? Yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah, I don't know. That's what it means in Bolivia, if you're in Bolivia. Were there more like Menina outside the fence? They asked a few more poor kids to play and saw the same thing happen over and over again. 
The founder of the school was so taken with these ragged street kids that he began inviting them in to learn, and soon an academy for the affluent became an academy for the needy. If that's just where it stopped, that would be big enough. Come on. But that's when the miracles began to happen. These small, undernourished children of Tawichi won hundreds of games against international teams. Most players they faced were bigger and at least a head taller. Tawichi team members played so hard against their opponents, they'd often collapse from exhaustion, but their will to win was so great, seconds later, they'd be up running down the field to score. The tenacity of these kids was inspiring enough to become known in the soccer world as the Tawichi way. Today, the Tawichi way extends far beyond the little academy, and just recently, again, this was written 20 years ago, just recently, nine of its graduates helped to pull off one of the greatest sports upset in modern times. As the members of the Bolivian national soccer team, they defeated mighty Brazil and made it to the World Cup. It's powerful, isn't it? I just have to believe that at some point, one of those young men was running down that field before an international audience, when you think about television, of millions, running down that field in a World Cup soccer game and thinking to himself, I shouldn't be here. I just wonder if he had a flashback of standing on the other side of the fence with his fingers wrapped around, peering through, seeing where he was, having a vision of where he wanted to be, and thinking to himself, oh, that's impossible. And as I was reading that story earlier today, praying through the service, I just got the fence that somebody here tonight, that you're a fence kid, that you're a fence kid. You might have affluence, you might have wealth, you might have material resources, but you're a fence kid. Because you look at where you are, and you have a vision for where you want to be, and this is what you've said to yourself, oh, that's impossible. And I think what God wants you to hear him say to you tonight is that's when I do my best work. That's when I do my best work. So, Father, for whoever that story is for tonight, we say let it be that faith would well up in their heart that you can do the impossible in every situation. Maybe even tonight during the worship set, Father, somebody was already thinking these thoughts along this line, thinking of what they knew that they wanted to become, what they wanted to do in this life, and it just seems so far beyond their reach. Oh, let it be that faith would rise up in their heart, and there is going to come a day where they're running down the field of their story that has come to fruition, and that there is going to be a, come on, just a song that wells up inside of their heart that they begin to tell the world that changes their world and inspires other people to believe the same. Come on, in Jesus' name, amen. We've been starting our, our, our every sermon in this series with a story of impossible accomplishments because the, stories, uh, the, the sermon is, uh, series is 50-day people. And now we get that, 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 that terminology from that there were 50 days between the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost is in Acts 2 where the church was born and the Feast of Passover is where Jesus died on the cross for us. And so we're, what we're saying is as a church, we're 50-day people, that we want to be a church that where we read about what happened to thousand years ago in the early church, we want those to be what people read about of the City Life Church when the story of this church is one day written. And one of the things that you cannot hide from as you begin to study the scriptures about the early church is that they had an unshakable belief. They had an unshakable belief that God still made the impossible possible. 
And so we're saying, what does it mean? What does it mean to be a Pentecostal church? What does it mean to be a 50-day people church? What does it mean to be a church that's like the New Testament church? And so we've just been digging in on this one truth that we believe that God still wants to do impossible things in our lives. He wants to do things that are beyond the realm of possibility. Mark 10, 27 has been kind of our anchor verse for this whole series all summer. It says, Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. Job 37, 5, I love this verse just because of the storm, right? Anybody was woken up, right? I was woken up momentarily, but then I was snoring, you know, right, right back in. Vanessa was up at like four or something and never, never went back to sleep. I didn't, I didn't have that problem. You have a spouse like that, right? They just irritate you to no end if you're the one that's up, right? You want to wake them up just out of spite so that they can suffer with you. So, so Psalm, Job 37.5 says that God's voice in the heavens, it thunders marvelously. Whenever I'm in the midst of a thunderstorm, I, I think about that verse, and, and I, just, I just wonder if, if one of the reasons why God created thunder is he just wanted to give us a glimpse of what he's going to sound like when we get there. I think he's hidden so much into this natural world just to give us an appetizer or foretaste of what's to come. And right there in Job 37.5, it says that his voice, it thunders marvelous, marvelously, but then as you read on at the end of the verse, it says that he is going to do things here in this life, in this world. He's, he's going to do, do things in the here and now that are impossible for us to comprehend. I want that in my life. I want to breathe my last and think back over my life and be able to say with honesty and integrity, I saw God do incomprehensible things in my life. I want to see God do incomprehensible things in your life. I want to see God do incomprehensible things in our church. And we know that one of the keys to him doing incomprehensible, well, I can't even say, that's an impossible word to even say, one of the keys to him doing an, I'm not even going to try, impossible things in our lives is that we have an ear that hears his voice. It's a powerful verse for us there in Job 37, the connection of those two. So we want to be a church that helps you learn how to hear his voice so that you can be a person that walks in his ways and that you can get to the end of your days and say, God did impossible things in my life. Come on, and we're going to see it happen in our lives together. So all series, we've been digging around in Acts chapter 2, what we call the 10 impossibilities, and we've spent some weeks on each of those. How about last week? Pastor Justin did for us impossible favor. Come on, you should give it up. I listened to the podcast. Come on, that was a good word. I was listening to him preach on impossible favor, and, and what I thought, what I, as I was listening to this week, I was like, we are the ones who are favored by God to have him and Stephanie here in this church doing student ministries for us. And if you've got teenagers or, or middle school students or, or, or college students here in the church, then come on, I hope that you're finding them every so often, look them in the eye and say thank you for what you do for our young people. Come on, it's good. So tonight I want, to, I want to talk a little bit about impossible loyalty. I thought we were going to do that this week and then impossible community next week. But as I got into it this week, there was, there was so much there. So I think we're going to do a, a part one and a part two, but, but we'll see how it goes tonight. So let me, let me read you this excerpt. It's in Church History in Plain Language. This is one of my all-time favorite books. If you're looking for a one-stop resource that's kind of the history of the church, this is it. It says Church History in, in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. It says, the practical expression of Christian love was probably among the most powerful causes of Christian success. Tertullian, who was an early church uh, uh, scholar and thinker, he was born in 150 AD, it says, tells us the pagans' remark. Now, this is what pagans said about the church. See how these Christians love one another. And the pagans' words were not irony, 
They met them. Christian love found expression in the care of the poor and of widows and orphans, in visits to brethren in prisons, or to those condemned to a living dark in the mines, and in acts of compassion during a famine, earthquake, or war. And it goes on. The impact of this ministry of mercy upon, upon pagans, that's anybody who didn't believe in Christ, upon pagans, is revealed in the observation of one of Christianity's worst enemies, the apostate Emperor Julian, who ruled from 332 to 63. In his day, Julian was finding it more difficult than he had expected to put new life into the traditional Roman religion. He wanted to set aside... Christianity, and bring it back, the, the Roman religions, of the ancient faith. But he saw clearly the drawing power of Christian love in practice. This is what he writes. Atheism, which was the term that were referred to Christians in early centuries because Christians refused to embrace belief in all the Roman gods. So they were called atheists. It says, atheism has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not one single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we ourselves should render them. It's powerful, isn't it? That there in the early church, there was such a sense of loyalty, not just for their own people, not just for the people in their own family, not just the people in their own congregation, but there was such a sense of loyalty that they had to the cause of Christ that they began to give of themselves sacrificially and selflessly to people outside of the church, and not just people outside the church, but to people who were working to put it into Christianity. Even to those people, they had a heart of compassion. There was a loyalty that they had to the cause of Christ that was so awe-inspiring that it caused the world from the outside looking in to say, even an emperor, an emperor to say, who are these people? Come on, may that be the testimony of our lives. May that be the testimony of this church. May that be the testimony of the Christianity that as we pass the baton to our children, that it causes even people that might mock us and seek to persecute us to look at us and deep inside have a sense of envy to say, even though I don't understand it, there's something about them that I need in my life. Come on, loyalty to the cause of Christ. So when you hear the word loyalty, we like participation here at the City Life Church. When you hear the word loyalty, what's something that comes to mind? When you, you've been hearing me talk about loyalty, so maybe some thoughts have come, some, some images, some people in history. When you, when you hear the word loyalty, what, what comes to mind to you? Lassie. Nice. He's a, he has a spirit of, of television shows tonight. The Jeffersons, Lassie. Yes, Lassie. April. Dedicated. Absolutely. Dedicated. Somebody else. Clem, unwavering, like renewing your wedding vows last night. Come on. How many years? Ten years. Ten years. They did a wedding now. Come on, you can clap for that. If you want to see a beautiful picture of Felicia and a really funny picture of Clem, you can go onto Facebook of when they got married. He was blonde at some point in his life, I'm just saying. Jen. Yeah, your mom and dad's relationship. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, we want to live that heritage out. We see it in our parents. We should see it in our parents. Sandy. A mother's love. Nice. The rich acts. Golden retrievers. 
You were good. Same dog? Same golden, golden retriever. Did you have a golden retriever? Yeah. 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 Golden retrievers. Somebody, was there a hand back here? Todd. Come on. Redskins fans. There we go. That's what we were looking for. Are, are you a Redskins fan or are you mocking me right now? <laughs> Richard, your, what's your hand up? Trust. Come on. You guys, you guys are good, Kevin. Loyalty to your college. The captains. CNU, big worship service there on campus tomorrow night. Seven o'clock. See you there. Somebody, there was another hand over here, Dustin. Brotherhood. Come on. Loyalty. So let me ask you this. Let's, let's twist it a little bit. A favorite movie of yours where there's a terrible moment of treachery and betrayal. So like we watched The Bodyguard the other night. It's one of Vanessa. I call that a hybrid movie. It's a, it's a hybrid movie because there's an intense, passionate love story. So it's a chick flick. And he kills people. <laughs> See, so I'm just saying you want to look for a hybrid movie. A hybrid movie. The Last of the Mohicans, another hybrid movie. There's love and there's death. Oh, oh it's killing. All right, so moment of treachery, the bodyguard, right? The sister hires a hitman to, to kill her sister, right? So moments of treachery. Braveheart. Oh, come on. Yes. Braveheart. Somebody else. Scotty. The count of, oh, that's a good one. With Jim Caviezel. Yes. Clem. He can't remember. Clem. He's so awestruck by his 10-year anniversary. The Gladiator, yeah. It's another good one. Somebody else? Chrissy? The Patriot, yeah. Yeah. Another one? Somebody over here? Young people? Any? No? Kevin? Mean Girls. All right. You got, I'm going to have to take your word for that. But I don't think that sounds like a hybrid movie. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. All right. How about people in the Bible who were known for betrayal. Judas, yeah, everybody got that one right out of the gate. How about another one? Jacob. I hear whispering, Jacob. All the way in the back, Ben. Dan. Cain, yes, Cain. Jen. Delilah. David. Got it, yeah. Chrissy. Saul. No question. It's amazing, isn't it? As you begin to read through Scripture, you read betrayal after betrayal after betrayal after betrayal. And I was praying about how we were going to really come at this idea of impossible loyalty when we were at the Wave Conference that, that we go to every year at the Wave Church down in Virginia Beach. St Steve Kelly is one of my favorite teachers on leadership. And he was, he was teaching on the, the, the idea of betrayal, and he was teaching out of history through the life of Benedict Arnold, right? We all know about that. I mean, his name became the quintessential way to talk about betrayal. We actually use his name. You're Benedict Arnold. So he's teaching on betrayal. And I thought to myself, come on, this is rich stuff in here. And so as I began to pray about this series, I thought, you know, we, we should come at loyalty that way. Because one of the ways that we're going to experience impossible loyalty in our church is if we are a betrayal-free setting. One of the ways that we're going to experience impossible degrees of loyalty is that we're going to work against being disloyal. So we're going to come at it in the opposite tonight and working through it again some next week because there should be an alarm that goes off in your life whenever you're at risk of disloyalty. There should be something inside of you that says, warning, you are now at risk, that you are emotionally compromised. Be careful. So we're going to look at the life of Jacob. 
to learn a little bit about some of these. And the first one we see is that when we are disappointed, when we are disappointed, deeply disappointed, we're at risk of disloyalty. All right, so if you've got your Bible, you can turn to, oh, all right, I got this slide first. Oh, yeah, come on, Numbers 21, 4. Let's read this. It says, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient, depressed, and much discouraged because of the trials of the way. Proverbs 13, 12. Anybody know what that, what that one is? It says, Hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. Hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. So God's trying to say to us, if you're not guarding your heart, if you're not careful, when you're in an emotionally compromised state, you're at risk. And so in Numbers 21.4, we're reading about the story of the Israelites, and as they left Egypt, right, they were enslaved for hundreds of years. Juice talked about them a little bit last week. When they came out, you find them stepping into moment after moment after moment of betrayal because they found themselves in circumstances and situations where they were saying to God, this isn't what I signed up for. Anybody ever been in a situation like that, right? You have an expectation about what you thought God was going to do in your life and with your life, and then you get out into the middle of it, and you say to God, this, I, this is not what I signed up for. I'm just telling you, when the people of Israel heard that a deliverer was coming, they were not expecting an 80-year-old Moses and his 83-year-old brother Aaron. I mean, God gave him some great signs and wonders. We see that, right? He could put his hand in his, his cloak, he'd pull it out, and it would be leprous, a, a circulatory disease, and he'd put it back in, it would be clean. But I'm just telling you, people, as they were walking out, they're thinking, that's great, but what about when we come up against enemy armies? Is that what you're going to do? That's how you're going to lead us? We're going to send an 80-year-old man out onto the battlefield, and he's going to put his hand in and inside out of his shirt. <laughs> right? There's some funny stuff in the Bible. He could throw his staff down, it would turn into a serpent, then he would pick it back up. And, like, those were signs to set them free. But I'm just telling you, if I had been in that crowd, one of the million people leaving Egypt, I would be thinking to myself, who's coming next? Because we're destined to die with these two senior citizens leading us. I, I mean, you're the only one that reads the story that way, or is it just me, right? They're saying to themselves, this isn't what we signed up for. You promised us deliverance, and you gave us that. And oftentimes we find ourselves in very similar circumstances and situations. And when we do, come on, when we do, we're at risk of betrayal. All right, now, Genesis 29. Forgot about that slide. That was a good one, though, wasn't it? Come on. Pat myself on the back up here. So when Laban heard the news about his sister's son Jacob, he ran to meet him, hugged him, kissed him, and then he took him to his house, and Jacob told him all that had happened. We've spent some time in this story together as a church, and we're going to keep doing it because there's so many layers of truth in here. Laban said to him, yes, you are my own flesh and blood. And after Jacob had stayed with him a month, Laban said to him, just because you're my relative, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. How many of you people want your boss to call you into their office on Monday morning, right? Now Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah, and the younger was Rachel. Leah had delicate eyes. We know what that means. But Rachel was shapely and beautiful. And Jacob, he loved Rachel. So he answered Laban, I'll work for you for seven years for your younger daughter. So, right, how many of you, when you went to your father-in-law to ask for your wife's hand in marriage, you offered to work for him for seven years? Anybody? Just, to, Honey, I would have worked forever for you. Forever. 
It's all about the points. I'm just telling you. <laughs> Marriage conference coming up in November. I worked for you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban replied, this is not the response he's hoping for. Well, better I give her to you than some other man. Stay with me. Some of you have heard that before. So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, and they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. There it is. Come on. Just on cue. Nice. It's a hybrid story. Then Jacob said to Laban, this is where the romance ends. Give me my wife for my time is completed. I want to sleep with her. <laughs> Rachel's like, well, what, what about all that because of my love for you? It's, Come on, honey, let's go. So Laban invited all the men of the place to a feast. And that evening, Laban took his daughter Leah, not Rachel, Leah, and gave her to Jacob, and he slept with her. And Laban gave his slave Zilpah to his daughter Leah as her slave. And when morning came, there was Leah. So he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? Laban answered, it's not our custom in this place to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn. Complete this week of wedding celebration, and we will also give you this younger one in return for working yet for another seven years. Come on, he's a slick dude, isn't he? And Jacob did just that. He finished the week of celebration and Laban gave his daughter Rachel as his wife and Laban gave his slave Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her slave. And Jacob slept with Rachel also. And indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah and he worked for another seven years. So we were at a wedding. This, that's where we were gone this past weekend. We were out in Tulsa, Oklahoma doing a wedding ceremony for a young couple that we just love dearly, Maurice and Krista. She was a part of the church here. She was a, a William and Mary Law student. She was at the campus uh, in Williamsburg for the last year, but she was here with us for the, the two years before that. And so we were so excited when they invited us to come out and, and, uh, and perform their ceremony there in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So, so, so Saturday night at the, at the end of the wedding, right, the, the reception is full underway, right? All the, uh, the, uh, the people of our age were, were finding their way back to the room. It's getting late. And so we went up to the, there was a, the, the hotel we were staying in downtown Tulsa. You could go up onto the rooftop. There was a lounge up there, and you could see out over the entire city of Tulsa. It was beautiful. And so as we're coming back down, we see one of the groomsmen making his way onto the elevator because there wasn't a, a bar at the, in the ballroom. So they had to go downstairs to get their drinks. And so he's, he's got a speed tray with all these little shooter glasses. I didn't know what it was. Vanessa had to explain it to me. But so there was a speed tray with all these shooter glasses, and, and it's full. I mean, you could not have fit another glass on there. And you know what I thought to myself? This is exactly what happened to Jacob right here, right? This is not what you want your groomsmen giving you on your wedding. Here, have another one of these. Because you might just wake up with Leah, and you're supposed to be waking up with Rachel. So I have a list, right, when I get to heaven of things I want to ask God. Do you have a list like that? And there's also people that I want to talk to when I get to heaven. I want to talk to Jacob. I want to say, come on, you've got to just at least tell me the story, right? What, how did that happen? How? how, how because the Bible doesn't give us any details, but the details that we do have, we know this, is that he was deeply disappointed. There was a disappointment that took root in his heart because of the treachery that Laban did to him. 
And when disappointment settles into our heart, we are emotionally compromised. And when we're emotionally compromised, we're set up for disloyalty and betrayal. Now, the disappointment in the story is self-evident. But the betrayal that Jacob committed against Leah is a little bit more subtle. But this is what it was. This is the betrayal. And it's an egregious betrayal within the context of marriage. He was willing to be physically involved with her, but not emotionally invested. He was willing to be physically involved with her, but not emotionally invested. And that's a betrayal of matrimony. That he had a sense of permission to betray this woman who was his wife because of the disappointment that he carried because of what Laban had done to him. So if I'm just telling you, young ladies, come on, this is a little commercial break for young ladies, college students, middle school, high school, single ladies in the crowd. If he's not willing to be emotionally invested, then you're not physically involved. And if you're believing the lie, well, if I'll just get physically involved, then that will help him become emotionally invested. No, it won't. And he doesn't really get to be physically involved until he's willing to make the emotional investment of standing at the altar and making some vows to you. So, all right, that's just a little commercial break. So back to our story. So if you're here tonight and there's some disappointment that you carry in your heart, there should be alarm bells that are going off. If you're, if you're in a season of life where just, just experience, and for some of you, it could be disappointment heaped upon disappointment heaped upon disappointment. There should be an alarm that is sounding saying you are at risk. And I want to give you three, and then I want to do one more, and then, and then we'll, 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 we'll take a break until next week, not till later tonight. So be like, oh, no, what have I signed up for? This is two parts. <laughs> Disappointments that remain silent. If you have disappointments in your life that you've not talked to anybody about, that you're at risk. If you have disappointments in you, you have got to find someone that you trust and talk with them about the disappointments that you carry. When I'm feeling disappointed in my life, come on, there's people in this church that I trust, that, that I go to, that I share those things with. I talk to my wife about them because I know that if they remain silent, they just grow and they get bigger and I'm at risk. And one of the things I'm at risk for will be disloyalty, just as we see played out in the story. Disappointments that are lingering. This is important. So maybe you're here and the disappointments that you face, they're big and you've talked to people about them. You've shared, but they just won't go away. We have great relationships with some incredible Christian counselors here in this area. Sometimes you need to get the help from a person who's navigated lots of disappointments for people. And we will put you in touch with them. We'll meet with you. But what we're saying is if you've got disappointments that are lingering, don't just think they'll just go away because they won't. They just get bigger, and the bigger that they get, the more at risk that you are. They can linger. This is a big one, especially for guys. Disappointments that are being ignored. Because guys, we, we have a, a, an unhealthy ability to compartmentalize. It could happen for ladies too, but especially for men. If there's something in your life, guys, that you look at and you're saying to yourself, I should be disappointed by that, but I'm not, then that's not good. You want to journey through the emotion of the disappointment as, that's connected to whatever that's happened in your life. And if you need some help with that, come on, you need to let me know. And either we'll help you or we'll get you in touch with somebody that will. All the stages of grief, no matter who you read, no matter, no matter what psychologist's book that you're, that you're looking at, 
they all start the same, the stages of grief. They might be four, five, six, seven, but they all start with one, and that one's denial. And guys, especially because we overcompartmentalize, we take things that happen to us and we put it in a nice little box and we put it over here. And I'm telling you, eventually it gets out of the box and we're at risk. We're at risk. When you feel disappointed, you're emotionally compromised and you're at risk of betrayal. All right, number two, when I'm feeling entitled. So when I'm feeling disappointed and when I'm feeling entitled. So John 13, 32, it says, when Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him, and then Jesus told him, hurry and do what you're going to do. It's a powerful verse for us, isn't it? Because this idea of feeling entitled, it can have spiritual consequences. And for Judas, it had the ultimate spiritual consequence where he became possessed. Serious stuff, isn't it? Right here in Scripture. We know that Judas struggled with entitlement because as you're reading through the Gospels and the apostles are writing about Judas, they comment about how he commonly stole from, the, from, the, from Jesus' treasury. So we know that there was a sense of entitlement about his life. We see it in David's life as we were doing the brainstorming. Someone mentioned that. If you have never read this story about David, you need to check this out. It's up there. 2 Samuel chapter 11, right? David is at home when kings are supposed to be out to war. You know why he's home? Because this is what he's saying. I deserve a break. I am entitled to stay back because I've done enough already. And then in that place of entitlement, because entitlement builds on other entitlements, he's on the roof one morning and he looks out and he, he sees Bathsheba bathing, right? And what does he say? I'm entitled to this. I'm the king. I have a sense of permission for this indiscretion that became one of the most treacherous betrayals that you will read about in all of Scripture. You should check that out. When we have a sense of entitlement, we are at risk for betrayal and disloyalty. All right, so let's pick up with Jacob. This is Genesis 25. Genesis 25. The two that we're going to look at next week are all out of the life of Jacob too. All right, Genesis 25. Let's pick up in verse 27. It says, when the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter and outdoorsman, but Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. And Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. That's another sermon for another time, but that's parenting issues right there. Setting their kids up for failure. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted, and he said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. And that is why he's also named Edom, which means red. And we read about that in the story of Israel when it says they passed through the land of Edom. Those were the descendants of Esau. Says Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Looks at Esau, I'm about to die, so what good is a birthright to me? So Jacob said, swear to me first. And so he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up, and went his way. And then listen to this, this, this last little part of the story is so important to us because it gives us insight to what we're talking about tonight. It says that he despised his birthright. Now, I don't believe that it says he despised his birthright because he had lost it. I think that's God giving us insight into the nature of his heart and how he viewed his birthright even before he had that encounter with his brother. So as, we, as we study the, the Jewish culture, we find that there's a birthright and there's a blessing. And those are two very different things, but they're both to be given to the oldest son. The birthright is, is that you get to become the new patriarch to the family. You become the heir. You become the, the, the he, he will become, Esau is supposed to become the, the new Isaac. 
And then part of that birthright is because with that responsibility becomes a lot of work. It means that you are also financially responsible for the entire family. So a father's estate would be divided by a number of his sons plus one. So if he had two sons, which he did, when he died, his estate would be divided by three and two portions would be given to Esau, and one would be given to Jacob, but that extra portion was not given to him so he could live lavishly. That extra portion was given to him so he would be financially prepared to care for the family. So the birthright wasn't about having all the money. The birthright was about having all the responsibility. The birthright was being assigned all the work of the care of the family. And I think when it says that Esau despised his birthright, I think that's God saying to us, Esau did not want to be responsible. He didn't want to do the work. So Jacob says, I'll do the work. I'll be that person. So don't feel sorry for Esau when you read this story, right? Because the reason he lost it is because he didn't want the work that went along with it. But what he did want, this is where it gets interesting, he did want the blessing. Now the blessing is what was prayed over the oldest son as the father was dying and the blessing, as you read the blessings that the patriarchs prayed over their children, it is uncanny how they all came true. It's a powerful thing when you read about in Scripture. I don't understand how it works when it is as though heaven stands behind the prayer of a person. I think that's part of what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 12 when he said, when you prophesy, make sure that you only prophesy to the degree that you have faith, to the degree that you have faith that God's going to stand behind your prayer. And all these patriarchs, as they prayed these blessings, they were prophetic utterances over the future of their children. Esau, he wanted the blessing. He wanted the favor of God. He wanted heavenly resources and open heaven over his life, just like that last song. Was that song that we sang, that new song tonight, that last song, Powerful? Come on. Esau wanted an open heaven over his life, but he did not want any of the responsibility that was associated with it. He just wanted a life of ease. And he knew that he could give up some earthly riches and some family chores, but if he had the favor of God on his life without all of the work, then he truly would be able to step into retirement at an early age. It's a whole other way to read the story, isn't it? So Jacob, I think he has a sense of entitlement. I think he begins to say to himself, right, because you know how the conversation goes, because you and I, if we're honest with each other, we've had conversations like this with ourselves. Well, I deserve that promotion over them. I don't know why they got it. I should have gotten that. Maybe within the context of your own family, maybe you've sat in a room and estates are being divided up and inheritance are being divvied out, and you've thought to yourself, I deserve that more than them. And when we allow a sense of entitlement to begin to rise up in our heart, we are emotionally compromised and we are at risk of disloyalty. Now, we're not going to read the whole story tonight for sake of time, but if you were to pick up in chapter 27 and read 14 through 27, you see one of the most, again, one of the most terrible moments of betrayal in all of Scripture, where Jacob, with the help of his mother, deceives Isaac on his deathbed. I mean, dressing him up in goat's hair and making him smell like him, making him feel like him, doing everything that they can. His mom even helps him prepare the dish so it's just right. Terrible treachery. Entitlement is a dangerous thing when it begins to well up inside of our heart. Now, there's a healthy form of entitlement, right? 
There's, there's good entitlement. Like we're doing our fantasy football draft at the end of the service, and it's a keeper league. Vernon Davis, Darren McFadden, Victor Cruz, I'm entitled to them. I know, I know. There's hobbies in life, right? We joke. But there's, there's as, as, as a father and a husband, there's a measure of respect that I'm entitled to in my home. Now, if I'm fathering and husbanding and, and doing the family thing the way that I'm supposed to, they can't wait to give me that respect, right? we got to do it right so that it flows easily from their heart. There's good entitlement in their life. The bad entitlement, the bad entitlement is when all of a sudden that sense of entitlement causes you to do things that you know that you shouldn't or not do things that you know that you should. Then all of a sudden entitlement becomes something that's unhealthy and inappropriate. And here we have, right here in this story, Jacob rising up as the second son, saying, I'm entitled to that blessing because Esau doesn't deserve it. And we we allow ourselves to be emotionally compromised in that way. We will begin to give ourselves permission to do the things that we shouldn't and to not do the things that we should. When you in this life find yourself emotionally compromised with a feeling of entitlement, there should be alarm bells that are going off saying, I am at risk. So I hope that that over this week you're going to ask some family members some questions about your personal life that you're going to be willing to sit down with your husband, you're going to be willing to sit down with your wife. If your kids are old enough, if they're little kids, they're not emotionally mature enough, but middle schoolers possibly, but definitely high schoolers and most certainly college students and young adults. You should have the courage to sit down with them and ask them, is is there a sense of entitlement in my life? Do Do I treat you in a demanding way? We've got to be willing to ask the hard questions about us because we have blind spots that we don't see, and sometimes we have to give people permission to say the things that we need to hear them say. And you should be doing that in your family on an ongoing basis, especially in the context of your marriage. Asking a coworker, your vocational life. You know just as well as I do, entitlement. I've, I've, I've been the one initiating the conversation, my own personal pity party, and I've been on the other end of conversations with, with some of you. Promotions, military. Sometimes you don't get the, the, uh, the, 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 the next status of officer that you thought that you should and someone else in the unit did, right? There's a sense of entitlement that can begin to well up in our heart. Now, in the workplace, you got to make sure that it's someone that you can trust because other people betray people too, right? So, so if it's, but it's got to be somebody that you trust. But in your workplace, you sh- if you've got a trusted friend in the context of your work life, you should take them to lunch and say, hey, I want to ask you, do, do you ever see a sense of entitlement to me in the workplace? You, you want to discover these things in your life because you want to know if you're emotionally vulnerable because you don't want to be the story of the next betrayer. Nobody in life wakes up one day and says, you know what, I think I'm just going to betray today everything that's sacred to me. Who does that? They don't do that. Those of you who have have perpetrated betrayal in other people, you didn't wake up one day. It was a gradual journey to get there. And I'm telling you, for every one of you, it started with a moment of being emotionally compromised, asking a coworker. The last one is this. You need to be willing to have an honest conversation with God about your ministry life. You and I were created with a destiny. It's powerful. That last song talked about it, right? One of my favorite books that in, in my school uh, that I did in pastoring is, is by Ed Wimberly. It's called Recalling Our Stories. He calls it the project of existence. You have a project of existence. There is a project that has been assigned to you from on high because you exist. I have a project of existence. You do. And if we're not careful, sometimes we become Israel and we say to God, this is not what I signed up for. And it begins with disappointment and sometimes it morphs its way right into a sense of entitlement. And the next thing 
we know we begin to betray our marriages. We begin to betray our children. We begin to betray our closest friends, all because the warning bells were going off and we just ignored them. We don't want that to be you. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back and before we do the second half of our service tonight. You want to share from me out of this book, the Bayers here in the church, I don't, I don't know if they're here, I don't think they're here tonight, um, gave me this book by Chad Varga. It's a powerful, powerful story. <clears throat> this is in chapter 10. We gave one away not too long ago, this book. It says, I twisted off the lid of a Mountain Dew and handed it to Dad as we pulled out of the service station. Balancing the nachos and the cheese on one knee and a sub sandwich in the other, I looked over at Dad and said, God is so awesome, I said excitedly. He sure is incredible, son. Dad answered back, reaching across to my shoulder with his free hand, and I snuggled his arm between my shoulder and face, and like I'd done a thousand times growing up. Hand me my sandwich, Dad requested as we continued heading south. So I missed at least one day of school, right, Dad? I asked hopefully. Lunch long over, we settled into the quiet silence as Dad passed over yet another state line. Both of us were wondering the same thing. How can we possibly find Mom in a city the size of Atlanta? Finally, I dozed off in the seat. So just to give you a little backstory, his mom suffered from a terrible drug addiction, and she was always running off, always had extramarital affairs their whole life. So the dad's in a church service, and God speaks to him, I want you to go find your wife. She's in Atlanta. They're in Michigan. I couldn't even tell you where Michigan is on a map, but I know it's really far from Atlanta. They didn't have a car. Didn't have any money. And people in their church, come on, we're loyal. Somebody said, you could take my car. And here's a little bit of money. And everybody was looking at them and was saying the same thing. What you're doing is impossible. Even if you make it there, how are you going to find her in a city that big? So early Monday morning, we continued our mission and we went from being pumped and full of faith to wondering how we could even begin to look for much less fine mom. Discouragement mounted. Dad reached over and I snuggled in his arm again and said, come on, we can do this. You just have to believe in what God told us. Always remember, faith is the evidence of things unseen. Whew, come on. Getting close to Atlanta, we took an exit off the highway. All right, I'll tell you the rest next week. No, I'm just kidding. Isn't your heart hungry to hear? The whole book is like this. you got to pick a copy of this up. I started looking for a Wendy's so that I could get a Frosty, and Dad flipped off the radio, and silence filled the car, and I looked at his face, and he was staring intently across the road. I followed his gaze and leaned forward to see better, and I saw a lady wearing a light blue shirt and cut-off jean shorts, her bleached blonde hair flying as she ran down the side of the highway. Dad and I looked at one another dumbfounded and said, that's mom. 
Dad spun the car around. We were whooping and hollering, and Dad pulled up behind her, and I jumped out of the car and took off running. Mom, I screamed, Mom, it's Chad, stop. A thousand thoughts assaulted my mind in an instant when she didn't stop right away. Maybe my uncle was right. She didn't want to be found. How stupid could you be, Chad, thinking that she'd want to come back with you? She doesn't care about you. She isn't going to stop. I ran faster and harder, and tears started to sting my face in the wind. Mom, I cried out again, please stop. She turned at the sound of my voice and peered suspiciously over her shoulder, and when she saw that it was me, she came running, arms open wide. She spotted Dad, and we collapsed together in a heap right there by the roadside, crying and embracing one another. And Dad headed for the nearest restaurant where he had a long talk with Mom about coming home with us, and she agreed. So on her journey on the way to Florida, one of her drug binges, she met some guy from Georgia who ran a crack house, and she got involved with him. And when he got tired of her, his plan was to kill her, to murder her. And somebody else in the crack house told her that he was going to kill her that night. So she was running because she was running from what she thought was going to be her last day on this earth. Can you imagine the emotion that flooded her soul when she turned around and saw that that was her son? How did he even, I'm just telling you, she was a fence kid. She looked at where she was. She knew who she was supposed to be, and it just seemed impossible. But that's when God does his best work. Come on, stand with me and sing this song.